Yes, thank you so much, everyone, for being here this afternoon. Um, as we discuss, let us speak freely now. Um, so for some of us here in Southeast Asia, and uh, I'm speaking specifically about myself, <laughs> uh, freedom of speech is really just an idea, you know, like wishful thinking. Um, <laughs> I'm from Brunei, uh, just to make that clear. Uh, and for some others, freedom of speech is, I think, like a fraught promise, yeah? So in my years of working in media, I have come to see freedom of speech as a construct. So for example, uh, two people living in the same country could have very different experiences uh, with uh, the, their state's rules on freedom of expression. So, yeah, because the fact of the matter is, uh, as George Orwell once famously said in Animal Farm, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. So today I want to explore what it really means to have freedom of speech, and I would like to shed light on uh, the realities of navigating censorship in this region and in this era. So on the panel today, we have Bernice Choli, a Malaysian novelist, poet, and educator, and previous director of the Georgetown Literary Festival. We have Faisal Tehrani, who's a Malaysian academic writer and playwright. We have Carlomar Archangel Dawana, who's a Filipino poet and arts and culture columnist at the Philippine Star. And we have Pretty Please, a, that's correct, Pretty Please, a Singaporean YouTuber, comedian, and activist. So welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. So as much as possible, um, I would like our panel today to be conversational. Uh, we do only have two mics, though, so I will direct questions to specific panelists, uh, but do add your own insights where relevant if you'd like to speak, and you know, we'll just communicate amongst each other to pass the mic. So, but basically, yeah, let's just act like we are a gang of old friends. We're catching up over lunch in front of an audience, okay? All right, so um, I'll start with Bernice. So as festival director of the Georgetown Literary Festival for many years, uh, where you brought in brilliant minds from all over the world, uh, can you talk us through what that selection process is like? like? Do you have to be mindful of personalities that might ruffle the powers that be, or uh, was there an active intention to ensure that radical thinkers are included in the lineup? Well, there is the before and after May 9th. So um, when Penang was still under the opposition and uh, the chief minister was Lim Guaneng, who was the founder and, and, and had the idea to create a book festival, it was very different because Georgetown, the Georgetown Literary Festival was kind of like the last bastion of free speech in Malaysia. And many of you who are here in 2016 knew that Zuna, the political cartoonist, was arrested under the Sedition Act during the festival. And of course, we had to go into, you know, go into action. We had to issue press statements and things like that. Last year, after um, Pakatan Harapan won, I decided to have a very strong LGBT content in the festival. And we were a bit worried because in the last 16 months, since Pakatan has come into power, there have been more violations, more harassment, murders of trans people, um, um, a lot of harassment towards LGBT people. So things have changed very drastically, and, and in a nutshell, I think things have gotten worse 
a lot worse. Um, in the previous session, there was talk of, of Wahhabism and, and, and Islamic extremism in, 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 in the region, and we will get to that as well. But yes, um, I think as festival director and the fact that we won the London Book Fair Prize last year, I think meant that this festival did something very, very special um, in Southeast Asia. It, it created a, a genesis of, of minds, of, of, of ideas, of conversations that could not really be held anywhere else in Malaysia, or Southeast Asia, for that matter. Okay, that's, thank you. That's interesting, because the reason why I think I wanted to highlight that is, um, as I said earlier, coming from Brunei, uh, like a lot of the, oh, hang on, sorry. Yeah, I wanted to highlight like how insidious censorship can be, and uh, how it can be unconsciously built into like our thought process. So in Brunei, where we practice a lot of uh, self-censorship, um, it's constantly sort of guiding my decisions on what to say, what not to say. So I was yeah, very curious to know whether like that, you know, was how much of that guided your, your selection of, of writers? Um, well, I mean, you know, Faisal's books have been banned, so you maybe should direct <laughs> the question to him, but... I will, he, he's next. <laughs> but as a writer, I think, you know, in Malaysia, it's just, there's so many, sto there are so many stories that need to be written. There's so much, again, political erasure, historical amnesia, um, um, things that we want to conveniently forget, which, which comes from the government, and it's rife in our education system. So there are a lot of issues that, that I want to write about, and, and I address um, one of these very, very key issues of, of the Malaysian Reformasi in my novel, Once You Were There. Now, I couldn't find a Malaysian publisher. It, was, it, had a, it took a, a Singaporean publisher to publish it um, because it was deemed controversial, and in Malaysia, the cover had for mature readers only um, because it talked about Anwar Ibrahim and Mahathir Muhammad, who then became prime minister. So I think, no, I do not censor myself because if I do, then I'm not doing justice to, to what I need to say about myself in the context of Malaysia. So I don't self-censor, because if I do, then I, I might as well not write or think. Okay, so when we talk about censorship, though, we often think about it in the context of media, and we often overlook how much um, it actually shapes our education system as well. So from history books that leave out details uh, to make colonizers look like heroes, uh, to even classroom culture that um, basically encourages obedience over critical thinking. So censorship actually affects us uh, very early in life. So Faisal, can you share with us what influenced you in your life to explore ideas that were outside the norm of the community that you were in? Tough question, yeah. <laughs> um, first of all, I think that um, I, I, I believe in literature as a, literature is sacred literature with capital L and um, because of that that um, I also have faith in literature and according to me literature is sort of like a religion and so the author will be like a secular prophet something like that and the readers if they're loyals they are sort of like um, adherents to a certain cult so because of that I believe that um, when a, re when a writer or an author, they gain more followers. So it sort of becomes like a, a competition between the L, the literature, and the other religion, the religion that we, like we used to understand. And um, because of that, I think um, also literature with this capital L 
um, it gives a lot of uh, space, room for us to to deal with everything. So this L, this capital L, literature, it deals with culture, it deals with politics, it deals with religion itself, it deals with everything, LGBT. And because of that, um, we are in the in special position, you know, uh, as a secular prophet to, to, to look into many other realm, many ideas, frameworks, concepts. And because of that, um, we are sort of like um, uh, people who with a dangerous mind. So literature is, is, is risky. And um, I'm, I'm from uh, my, my, first, my first degree is actually Islamic studies. And because of that, uh, I love to look into other different frameworks, concepts. And since I believe also that that capital L is also sort of like a faith, a religion. Um, and uh, I, it, I keep on pushing boundaries and looking into, you know, I, I'm not a person who believes in homosexual, sexual, S-E-C-T, sect. Yeah, not homosexual. So I'm not a person who believes in homosexual. So I, I believe in pluralism. Um, and because of that, I keep pushing and looking and reading and uh, offering new ideas and and uh, believing that this L capital capital L literature uh, we have uh, a lot to offer. And that uh, when the, the the clashes, you know, between me and the religious establishment, and um, so that end up with uh, seven books being banned. So, yeah. but um, so going back to what you were saying about how you know you tend to want to push the boundaries, would you say that that is just sort of a natural part of your personality, or was that nurtured at any point um, in your youth, like maybe from your family environment? Were you around people that tend to be thought-provoking or? Uh, was it educate? Like, what was the point that made you be like, "Oh, actually, I, I want to ask more questions"? Um, yeah, the, very good question. Um, perhaps I think um, teachers have been uh, shaping me. Yeah, uh, I believe uh, education is teachers. They have sort of like um, power, you know, to, to shape people. And in my case, um, here right in Penang. Um, one of my, my supervisor, my, my MA supervisor, is actually Professor Shahnun Ahmad, who's actually been being a very vocal uh, writer uh, in his own way. Um, and because of that, um, uh, I think I learned a lot of, about courage from him. And when, when Shahnun Ahmad wrote this um, shocking, you know, uh, satire shit, um, I was back then uh, one of his students, his MA student, I, I'm, I'm his the last, the last student, I'm one of the last student, uh, when he's in USM still. And um, so I still remember that um, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's writing a typewriter. So uh, every night, I, I stayed in his house actually. Uh, and the, the sound of clicking of the typewriter, and every morning when I have breakfast with him, and he showed me uh, the raw pages of, uh, of his manuscripts. And the title of the, of, uh, the manuscript at the time is not shit. It's Pokima. <laughs> so I was like, um, 
uh, and then he said that what do you think about the title I said okay mm, maybe you you should tone it down a little bit maybe we're not going to use that um, so he said that so what what do you suggest I think maybe something like you know like shit perhaps <laughs> and then uh, or other words and said, shit is a good word I, I'm not claiming that uh, Shahanon get this title from me but um, but li later on after that um, uh, he, I mean, I want to tell a story about Chahanon, actually. And because of that, uh, I think I, 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 have, I get his courage. Um, and I look at him, how he, he faced all the pressures, you know, until he quit university. And, and now I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the same treatment, yeah? So this, all of these things actually shaped me uh, in my early years, when I, when, I was a, when I was a very early young writer, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Um, yes, next. Okay, so um, with, okay, moving on now to uh, another, you know, it's fine, I'm just gonna jump right into the next question. So with more ease in accessing information nowadays, uh, we are seeing a culture of wokeness where more and more people are becoming socially conscious. So for example, in the US, you have TV shows like Orange is the New Black, uh, which is not just a show about women in prison, but it's a critique of the prison industrial complex. And you even have shows like family comedies, like Blackish, which really can't avoid uh, bringing politics into it. So Carlo, in the Philippines, it's quite common for celebrities to pursue a career in politics. But I'm curious if there is much space in the entertainment industry itself for politics. Like, are there a lot of artists that seek to challenge the status quo through their art, and how is it received? Um, that's a very good question, because um, in the Philippines, uh, we're known basically um, for two things. Uh, um, uh, beauty pageants <laughs> and um, also um, boxing, right? Uh, two um, forms of spectacle. So um, entertainment is part and parcel of our culture. Um, but if we're talking about popular culture in general, I would say there is only a handful of actors, actresses that are kind of vocal against what's happening. Um, with you know, with um, with the current uh, presidency of Rodrigo Duterte, um, of course uh, they reach um, millions of audience um, through Twitter, uh, Instagram, but or uh, Facebook, but uh, particularly through um, Instagram or Twitter. Um, but there are few because there's still um, that kind of I don't know, perhaps a sense of. Um, a political attitude, um, a sense of privilege also, the fact that they won't be touched uh, by certain policies of Rodrigo Duterte that target um, mostly um, poor people. And I'm talking about the extrajudicial killings um, uh, in the Philippines where suspected drug users and traders um, are being killed um, on the streets and in their houses. Um, and so far, the numbers, are, according to NGOs, are in the vicinity of 20,000 deaths um, since Duterte um, occupied the seat uh, three years ago. Um, so it's very far and uh, few, I would like to say, in terms of how 
of these artists or the celebrities who really have the power um, to influence minds um, are, are really, you know, taking advantage of that, their, their individual or respective platforms. Um, so, like the ones that do pursue politics, for example, like are they trying to challenge the status quo, or are they also just just taking from their own privilege and they just also want a piece of the pie? Oh, um, those who are courageous enough to actually speak up against certain um, certain um, indications of corruption, for instance, um, I think they're doing it for the love of country more than anything else. Um, uh, you know, um, because there are things that might happen to you, you know, you don't get projects, for instance, or you become some kind, you're blacklisted uh, for certain roles or whatnot. So there's that looming possibility. Um, so I, it's uh, admirable um, for them to really speak up. Bec and also because they have a, a huge, huge audience to, to address. Um, but I would like to add that um, aside from you know, the entertainment industry, it's really the journalists who are still doing the heavy lifting uh, in terms of exposing um, corrupt practices, the EJKs in the Philippines. Um, because in the Philippines, um, and we pride ourselves as being one of the nations who have you know, a robust uh, free press. Um, so it's still pretty much alive. Um, I would like to, to think and, and say, um, uh, President Joseph Estrada, who was very popular, he was a celebrity yeah. first, for, for decades and who eventually became a president. He had the support of the masses, but because of the, ex the investigative um, pieces by the Philippine Center of Investigative Journalism, headed by, um, um, uh, by, by, uh, by now, who's the, uh, the dean uh, of the current uh, academic affairs of Columbia uh, University, um, Sheila Conornel, um, that led to the erosion of his popularity until people felt compelled to go to the streets and start protesting. So after two and a half years, in power, he was ejected through through mass movement. Um, and Anton is here, um, who's my colleague back in the Philippines. Uh, President Estrada um, actually also harassed the, the newspaper Manila Times, and it closed because of um, the, the pressure. But there would be those um, alternative um, spaces or for journalism. To, to thrive, and one of them was PCIJ uh, that was instrumental. And now what's being targeted uh, by the regime, if I may call it that, would be Rappler, um, an, an online um, news portal, um, because they're very critical from the get-go of Duterte. Um, the presidential, um, you know, um, the access uh, to do coverage has been revoked, um, the only the only time it's it's been done so by a sitting president, but that's being challenged uh, in the Supreme Court. Um, their taxes are being looked into. Uh, their registrations are being looked into. Um, another critical paper, the Philippine Daily Inquirer, uh, the Prietos, uh, who own 
um, the the newspaper, or at least you know, uh, are bought by a friend of the the current uh, administration. So now um, they're infiltrating into the infiltrating. Free press as well. So yeah. perhaps there's nothing like you know, like like going like you know, going to the to the news agency and then padlocking it. Perhaps nothing as um, evident and as in your face like that, but they're looking into other channels with which to um, to erode and to deconstruct and to undermine um, these structures uh, that we have. That the Forte State basically that would uh, that would report and uh, you know what's happening on the ground. Okay, so that's why I feel it's interesting actually. Um, you know. When, when people can sort of incorporate these issues into entertainment. And um, before I go into that with Pretty Please, I want to actually ask Bernice um, whether there is that sense of overlap here in Malaysia, if you, if, you know any, if you know of that, of overlap between entertainment and politics, like in the arts. You know, someone was telling me that uh, two days ago, FINAS, which is our national film board, decreed that younger actors are no longer allowed to wear makeup to play older characters, which is completely ridiculous. I mean, it just makes no what sense. What's the rationale for that? I have absolutely no idea. I was just told this. I didn't read this. So I think, you know, what's happening in Malaysia now is, is verging on the, on the, on the ludicrous. It's, it's going into the realm of the, of the surreal... Um, it, it's, I really have no idea what's happening to this country anymore. Um, yes, it's, it's, it's actually becoming this, you know, we had this incredible revolution on the 9th of May where Malaysians came together and voted and kicked out Najib and his corrupt government. But now we are more fractured than ever. Um, you know, the head of Finas wants to censor Netflix. There's a rise of, of Islamic populism extremism, seven states in Malaysia refuse to ban child marriage, which means an eight-year-old can marry a 60-year-old man. Sisters in Islam, who you know, have been fighting for, for women's rights for, for decades, they're now being slapped with a fatwa for being deviant Muslims. So I really don't know what's going on. I mean, what is entertainment? You know, all that we see in Malaysian cinemas are horror films. So you can, you can have horror. Not an allegory to anything in society, no, maybe. No, but again, um, you know, Edin Koo, who's one of the, the directors of Pusaka, told me recently as well, in Klantan and Trangandu now, you can have Ma'yong and the trance. So you can actually go into ritual trance, but you cannot have the performance. So, tak boleh main suka-suka, tapi boleh ada, you know, you can go into trance, boleh mengubat, you can heal, because the past fillers are scared that the hantus will go after them. Seriously. So, you know, the lines between what is real and what is surreal and what is stupid is just, I, I have no idea, I have absolutely no, no I, I don't know where to start. I have no, I, really, I'm just completely dumbfounded about what the, what's happening in this country at the moment. So, yeah, sorry. I no just, worries, yeah. we'll, we'll, come back to, <laughs> we'll come back to that. Uh, let me speak to Pretty Please now. <laughs> So you've been able to combine entertainment and politics, uh, which then got you in trouble with the Singapore government. Mm -hmm. So can you talk us through that experience and whether that affected your approach to your art afterwards? Okay, so my name is Pretty, and I go by Pretty Please online because Pretty Please, <laughs> it's funny. 
So um, I've been making comedy videos since 2016, and I've been talking about things that we should all be talking about in Singapore, like body positivity, cyberbullying, uh, minority representation in local media, LGBTQ rights. So everything that we should be talking about, I've been talking about in my, in my, on my YouTube channel, my Facebook page, and I've used humor to talk about everything. So it's satire, I just make fun of a lot of things that happen in Singapore, and it's, it's always been tricky, but I've never been afraid to say anything because I've masked it with enough humor for everyone to just look at it and laugh or just start talking about the important things. So um, a few months ago in September, in August, let me try and think, when did I get my conditional warning? So <laughs> in, in July, in July. We're like a badge of pride. Yes. <laughs> so um, Mediacorp is like our biggest media company in Singapore and they are the ones with the free-to-air channel. So Mediacorp is basically all the media in Singapore. And they, have, um, they, they got one of their veteran actors to paint his skin, she's a Chinese guy, and he painted his skin brown and he wore a tudong and he played like a Muslim lady and he also played an Indian man. And they made him wear like curly hair, like a curly wig, painted his skin dark brown, and even gave him like a lanyard and acted like an office worker with his name as K Mutusami. So it was, it was just like, it was an actual advertisement for uh, ePay, like a Nets Pay thingy. And it was all over Singapore. So like they printed like massive banner ads that were in the most popular food, food courts in Singapore. And it was ads online and basically everywhere. So within like 24 hours, news broke out that okay, this, this offensive ad is running everywhere. There's this Chinese guy painted his skin brown. He basically did brown face, which is, it's crazy. Like, that has happened for ever in America, and that's so frowned upon. And in Singapore, it has happened, like, this is the third or fourth incident by Mediacorp. So the last two or three incidents, I've made fun of it already. <laughs> and I've always just, like, I, I've just been sarcastic about it. I've just, like, mocked how, like, I can't believe this is happening. But this time, it was on a whole new scale because it was advertisements all over the country. And a lot of people were talking about it. But, the, like, no one apologized. No one, no one even talked about, like, okay, here, here's our intention or, like, here's, what, here's how we went wrong and here's why we won't do this again. So it's always been really bad apologies. Like when people apologize for brown face in Singapore, they say things like, oh, I'm sorry if people were offended. Or like, you know, it's just shitty apologies. Lah. Like, just apologize properly at this point, you know? So, so when we saw the advertisement, my brother who is in front and he's a rapper, so he, we both saw the advertisement and we were like, okay, let's, we need to make fun of this for sure. I wanted to do a funny video, but my, bro my brother wanted to do a song. So we were like, okay, how about together, let's just do a rap song, a funny rap song about it. And we parodied an uh, Iggy Azalea song, and the title, can I cuss? So the title of the song is F It Up, so it's Fuck It Up, the Iggy Azalea song. And we were like, okay, I mean, to fuck it up means to make a mistake. That, that's obvious. So we were like, okay, this, this is a major like screw up, so let's use the song Fuck It Up to talk about this. So we had the same chorus, you know, it would say like, fuck it up, sis, it was really fun, it was catchy. But in the song, we directed it towards the racist Chinese people in Singapore who constantly painted their faces brown to portray us. When you can just hire Indian men, you can just hire a Muslim woman. So we, we, we just went to the food center where they had the advertisement. 
we stood in front of the ad and we rapped and said, fuck it up. And we, we talked about the, everything that has gone on for way too long and how we keep getting horrible apologies or people keep saying, oh, it's okay, you know, I have Indian friends, I have Malay friends. Like, that is not, that is not an apology. That's not an excuse. Like, I have Chinese friends. I don't do racist things. So it's, it's so ridiculous how that has been the apology we've gotten for decades. So we made that video and <laughs> overnight it went viral and... Within 24 hours, the police were like reaching out to my brother and we were getting investigated and we found out everything through the news before even police actually reached out to us. So I was in Bali and my friends were sending me like Straits Times articles saying, um, rap, rap siblings, YouTuber pretty please and brother Subash being investigated by police. And I'm like, nobody is talking to us. Like, that's not true. Like, no one was investigating us. But within like an hour, police were like texting my brother. They were call calling down everyone for interrogations. And I'm just like, we just made a song with the F word in it. Now, what was there for them to interrogate specifically? Because basically, eventually we got a conditional warning and it was under the Sedition Act. So we, we got a two-year conditional warning. And this means that if we commit any crime in Singapore for the next two years, we, they can bring this case back up and charge us in court. So at, before, before they gave us this outcome, we were either going to get like a stern warning, a conditional warning, or... I mean, worst, worst case scenario was, was going to be like a fine and imprisonment for up to three years. So we were so confused because this was all because we made a song. So it was very confusing for the both of us and we kind of didn't even know how to feel. But I think with this happening in Singapore, it has started an insane amount of conversations about race and we got a minister to admit that racism does exist in Singapore. And I think... I mean, no regrets, no regrets at all. Of course, there was a massive like smear campaign after, after the whole incident. Yeah, did that affect your livelihood in any way? Like, for sure. I mean, if you type pretty please, you don't see anything I've done in two years. You just see conditional warning, police investigation, rap video. You see all that before you even know that pretty Naya is my real name. You know, you see all that first. Like, it's, it's crazy. So, it's, it's so insane. And um, we've been, we've got like, the day it happened, we got like 50 over media outlets with our phone numbers trying to like call us, reach us just to get a quote, a statement, a story. Was there interest and from Western media as well? Um, it was, yeah, um, SCMP BBC and BBC did like, but BBC covered it, they didn't, they didn't speak to us, so they just covered the incident, which was kind of insane, but BBC was the most like neutral and the best form of journalism you could see from this entire incident, because everything, they... The amount of images they used on the Channel 5 news at 9.30, my mom would be watching and she would film it and send us on the family group. She'd be like, so angry on our behalf. They used so many screenshots and images that made us look deranged. Like they would screenshot the most, the, the worst screenshots from the video of my, me like looking like that. And then they would be like, rap duo, you know, they, they used offensive language, vulgarities, videos laced with vulgarities. And I'm like... Chill. <laughs> Do you think that was, okay, so I'm curious, because again, coming from somewhere where we don't have freedom of speech, like, it's, you really have to be very careful about the, the lines, because it's not clear, and the way, and they do that on purpose for it to yeah. not be clear so that they can decide when it's offensive and when it's not, yes. right? So I'm curious as to what was the line that you actually crossed. Was, because as you said, you had criticized racism before, but is it because you used expletives? Yeah. Is that what made it I think unacceptable? That, that was literally it. Because in the video, we, honestly, we were just having fun. We were 
pointing our middle fingers, dancing around the advertisement and just laughing throughout the whole video. And we had random, we had our Chinese friends like come in the video and also laugh at the whole situation. So I think the biggest issue they had with this was that vulgarities were used, which I mean, in hindsight now, after being interrogated for nine hours in a police station, when they ask me, do you think what you did was wrong? I will say no, but I do think that maybe if I didn't use the vulgarities, I would not come under fire. But then again, if I didn't come under fire, would we even be talking about racism in Singapore? And would our law minister actually be interviewed outside a temple, you know, and, and actually saying like, oh yes, racism exists. Would, would that actually happen in the next like decade in Singapore? I don't even think so. So if it meant both of us kind of like taking a hit for it, then it was worth it. But of course, like after, after everything went down, there was definitely a loss of jobs, a loss of income, and the smear campaign, like everyone talks about it, or people just know me as the girl from the rap video. And I'm just like, I've talked about race for three years now in my career, and, and it's always been fun. It's always been like, okay, that's so funny. And, and Did it take a toll on you emotionally at um, all? I think for sure, but for me personally, it's always, it's not about me. So if I'm gonna put out a video about race, cyberbullying, about anything like that, it's, it's never been about me. If anything, I'll share my personal experience, but the, the reason I do it is not for me to be able to sleep at night. <laughs> it's for me to be able to get the kids who follow me out there, for them to start talking about these things and for my country to start acknowledging these things. So because it's not about me, I think it was easier to just like, you know, it's okay, I'll take, I'll take this hit. Like my brother and I will take this loss for sure. But of course, having your loved ones and having your friends around you who completely understand your intentions was, was the best thing I could possibly have. Because the worst, the worst part was when people really thought like I was a racist person, like I hated Chinese people. I'm like, no, no, no. You, you cannot paint your face brown in a national campaign. And then when an Indian girl says, oh, that's racist, Chinese people need to stop being so racist. And then you call the Indian girl racist. Like, it's such a five-year-old argument, like, you're racist, no, you're racist. <laughs> like, yeah, so that, that was when I'm like, okay, as long as you know my intentions, I'm good. Yeah, but there's always a, there's a lack of nuance in media nowadays, yeah. I think, and it's very, it's easy to just depict you as, like, you know, a big bad. Mm -hmm. um, Faisal, you've also had your work banned. So did it surprise you when that happened, or were you expecting it? <laughs> um... No, I was not expecting it um, because um, uh, you know one one of the one, one of my the book that been banned is I have seven. Uh, it's called Tiga Kali Seminggu. Uh, it's a satire about uh, this Muslim preacher uh, marrying a younger woman, and uh, he has already three wives, and one of the one of the girl actually. He, in a mosque, flirting him and uh, trying to make uh, him to be uh, a husband, uh, so fourth wife. And um, this girl is um, trying to tell uh, this preacher, this cleric, that Tiga Kali Seminggu is So I just need you for three, three times a week. Um, but uh, obviously, the religious establishment thinks that. That's quite offensive. I mean, like it's a good uh, deal. Three times a week is <laughs> <laughs> linking them with uh, sex, or perhaps yeah. And um, they think that um, that's really, really insulting. And um, so these things that 
just like what Bernice told you, uh, told all of us here, that this country is heading towards absurdity that we don't know, I mean, so what's right and what's not right anymore. And so I was not expecting it. And um, so when I was, uh, and you know what, most of my writings, are, I, I, don't, I don't treat creative writing as creative writing, but I treat my works actually, even my fictions, creative writing as critical writing. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, if you write, if you read my books, sort of like there's lectures, there's notes, academic, uh, you know, uh, discourses, stuff like that. And because of that, I do have sometimes footnotes, uh, things like that. So I, I don't, I treat it as like ac ac academic arguments. And uh, I tend to believe that in academic, uh, you know, we, we disagree a lot, we debate, we argue. And um, we don't really, you know, people don't censor you, yeah, because it's academic work. So I, I don't, I don't really, really, um, really look at it that my works is going to be banned. Um, and I've been writing like that for ages. So when it's when when government start banning uh, my books, and you know what, my first book when it was banned, um, I think three weeks, three weeks before, I mean. Uh, when the religious, religious authorities uh, stating that they're going to ban my books, three weeks before that, Najib Raza is actually launching. He, he launched my book. If you imagine, in Sri, in Sri Padana, with, with, of course, with other 30 books, like 29 books. So I was like, so I, I'm not, I'm not uh, seeing that it's, it's going to come, you know? Because, um, yeah. And in, in fact, when I was, I'm, when I was with him uh, during the launching, um, he was reading the title of the book, uh, and I stated this in my 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 note for Mekong Review. Actually, the title "Curse." Um, Najib was asking to me. He, said, he was said mumbling like um, "perempuan nan bercinta" something like that, and, but he was stating like "perempuan penan cinta," and I have this. Have, I you know I have I have bad hearing, uh, so I, I I couldn't listen, listen properly. He said that no 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 no, it's not about uh, I I. It's not nan bercinta. Nan is you know bread, yeah, roti nan. <laughs> so I said no, no, no. It's, it's a perempuan, perempuan macam this. And I, I was trying to to, to to correct him even. And um, he said, oh, what's the book about? Um, it's about uh, love, well, obviously. But a little bit of you know discussion of school of thoughts. So, um, so I'm not look. I'm not even uh, thinking that it's going to be banned. But three weeks after that. The religious authorities stated that they're going to ban it, and then it took like them like for two years after that to ban it. Can you imagine? 2012, 2014, they start to ban it. So by that time, uh, you know, you know, in Malaysia, uh, readership is like the most you can go is like 10,000. So I, I've 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 sold the books like around six, seven thousand copies. I mean, and the one that published it is actually a government agency. Uh, Publisher, you know, ITBM. I mean, they're selling books. Do they not talk? They don't talk with each other to see what is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's totally. I mean, like, fuck um, up. Yeah, you know, I just don't understand it. So when when it get banned, and then it keep getting, I mean, like seven more, six more books banned, and when they banned, uh, even and also one of the books that been banned is actually a collection of my essays on film reviews, actually, which is I don't really understand why they banned it. So they don't even sit down and explain to no, you no. where you go wrong? No. Yeah. So I just don't know. Oh. I'm in the dark. On, on, on the subject of book banning in Malaysia, 
If you go to popular bookshop, you will see Mein Kampf under the fiction section. I, no, that's true. And Darwin's Origin of the Species is banned in Malaysia. But you can buy Mein Kampf under the fiction section. I think that's also just because Mein Kampf does not, it doesn't affect their power, right? Like in a way, like it's, it's not, it's something that's separate and it's not directly sort of, no, I, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine, like they're, they're not making that connection, you know? Like it's, it's not about the Muslim faith specifically. Like, who's or the about, they? I mean, who's the they really? Is it the religious authorities? Is it the government? Oh, Is I don't know. In one I'm, I'm always told that as well, like the people up there, the they, and I don't know who, who they because are. Because the sedition, the sedition <laughs> act here is so insidious. All it takes is one person. Yeah. It's one true. person to make, a, uh, you know, to, yeah. to make a complaint and then, but the Sedition Act in Malaysia extends to beyond Malaysia. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering about you. Are you safe here in Malaysia? Can you, are you going to get arrested? Are you going to be, you know, interrogated again? <laughs> okay, so um, I'm going to open this up to anyone who wants to answer it. But where I'm from, those of us who work in media are very familiar with the saying that if you have to ask whether it's okay or not to say it, then it's better not to say it. You know, um, but as a writer, I've also been taught that if it terrifies you, you must write it. Right? So, yeah, it's hard life. <laughs> <laughs> but so have you had moments um, where you thought, okay, this might get me in trouble, but I'm going to write this anyway. And can you just share with us what the mental process is like to find the courage to do that. Because I think like, it's, it's that, that people might feel things, but might not be brave enough to actually put their voices and their thoughts out there. So, who wants to start? Bernice, you were holding the mic, so. Um, I, I wrote a poem about Najib and Rosma um, in my third collection of Onkolo, it's called Jurit. But I did it in such a clever way uh, that don't, they don't understand. La. No, 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 that's no, true. No. I do that as well. <laughs> I use really fancy English. And then they're like, mm, I don't know but what I that did, means. But I did have a lawyer just look through the manuscript just to make sure everything was okay. And I spoke to friends and they said, no, just go ahead. And the thing in Malaysia is that, you know, and, and it's, I, I hate to say it, it's, not, it's so cliche, but it's kind of safer to write in English. It is. And, you know, if somebody in the religious department were to pick up, you know, something that I may have written, um, and they just, they, you know, like, the, you know, because the English is very the terror. So, so yeah, you, you, have to, you have to find ways and means and creative, clever, cunning means, cunning, to kind of circumvent that because, you know, they might not get it. And, and so far, I think, um, yeah, um, I've been fortunate enough to not have been investigated, nothing's been banned. Um, but I think that, you know, because I am very vocal, um, especially when I speak at festivals abroad about Malaysia, so I don't know, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Okay, how about Carlo? Um, I, I wrote a couple of poems, uh, Pre-Duterte, uh, that talked about uh, drug addiction, um, especially in my community. Um, I, um, I'm processing it and I'm asking myself, would I have the same courage, for instance, to have written those poems uh, as soon as, or within the presidency of Duterte? Um, I'm raising that uh, as a question. But there was a recent experience of uh, me um, seeing um, a guy um, 
who's, you know, who was uh, a victim of um, extrajudicial killing. Um, in, at the onset of, of uh, the Duterte presidency, uh, the bodies uh, were made visible, meaning to say um, uh, some of them would be you know, killed on the streets. Um, and then there was this uh, body by the highway um, whose legs and hands were tied and whose, um, whose head uh, was wrapped with masking tape. And there was like yellow police tape around him, and there were people um, hovering and looking at this body. And it was like six, seven o'clock in the morning. And, and you know, like the cognitive dissonance, like, am I really seeing like this? Because, you know, never in my life um, had I experienced like a, you know, like an actual, um, like a dead body on the street. And I saw it with my own two eyes. And, and um, I tried writing a poem about it, but I find it difficult also because I'm also asking my subject position. Um, and um, you know, like uh, all, all the complicated moral and ethical dilemmas that you have, like would I just be another voice commenting on this? What would I actually do as, a, as in the form of a quote-unquote, like, uh, participative action, um, something like that. So, um, so with literature, um, at least uh, I'm talking um, about my own process. I think it's going to be a slow burn. Uh, I, may try, I may write something about it in the future. Uh, I may delve um, into, um, into the, into the fam family history of uh, drug addiction. Um, but it's not because Duterte is in power. Uh, but because also um, um, there's all, like for me um, I'm like certain dilemmas, moral dilemmas that I need to resolve internally first. Um, because you know, like not for anything else. Like I'm teaching in a university. Um, I'm safe, quote unquote. Um, I might be seen speaking from a point of view of privilege, for instance. So what are the other ways, um, aside from writing, or alongside writing, can I do to, to participate in the larger struggle? Um, and that's something that, um, that, that is hunting me, really, uh, personally and in, in many layers. So uh, I hope to, to get there. But yes, definitely. But um, I don't know whether uh, I'll be able to work up the courage for that. But uh, but that's something that is hopefully brewing um, because it's an avoidable reality now um, in the Philippines. Uh, other poets, other artists, visual artists have responded to it in many ways. Musicians have responded to it uh, in their, their works. Um, but still, you know, Duterte is still in power and he still commands like 80% uh, of you know the trust rating of the populace. On, on that note, actually, you mentioned Duterte. So um, authoritarian governments, they they use censorship to keep themselves in power. Um, but it's also important for us to remember that governments should be beholden uh, to its people. And so, for authoritarian leadership to remain in power, uh, there must, to an extent, be, if not 
if not through active support, um, or at least through like tacit approval or just apathy um, from a majority of the population. And usually these are privileged groups, as you mentioned, a privilege earlier, usually these are privileged groups whose lives aren't particularly affected by restrictions on free speech. So I'll pose this question to you, Preeti. Um, how do we get people to care? And how do we convince them to buy into the necessity of freedom of speech when it's not of urgency to them? Make a rap video with vulgarity. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, I really, I really think it's how you put your point across. So even though like we've constantly done satire and we've been very subtle with, with our jokes and getting our point across, I think like Singapore needed our rap video. Singapore needed Kim Mutusami. It needed two Indian siblings standing in front of that ad and flipping them off and saying the F word. Because if that didn't happen, we, we've never even heard a, a minister say racism in Singapore. So that was, that was definitely, it was about time for us. And but, okay, so the minister acknowledged that there's racism, mm -hmm. but what came after the acknowledgement? Was there actual policies? Was there, are there things introduced? Was there anything tangible that came out of that? I don't think there was um, anything tangible, but it's more of, I think it's safe to say that in the next five to 10 years, no, one, no Chinese person in Singapore is gonna paint their skin brown because that, this blew up, you know, that this blew up. Like it is gonna be like- I, don't know, I wouldn't put it past you. People with privilege <laughs> will really think they- <laughs> That's true. But, but I think just now when you mentioned like, like, am I afraid now to like create content and when I create my content, what do I think about now? I think only after this incident, it's been kind of scary and I've actually had to like consult lawyer friends before putting out certain videos or if I'm kind of referencing the issue, then I'll check in with a friend. But before that, I never thought about it. Before that, I was just having fun. I was just making it funny enough. So as long as you're laughing, you're not going to be offended by anything. So I was just making, making sure it was funny enough or covered with enough humor. But I think it's also what Bernice said, like it has to be smart enough so sometimes they don't get it. So my brother has a song called punishment in all capital letters because it is about the capital punishment in Singapore. And that has been out for over a year. It's been one, out for like a year and a half. He's still here. He didn't get in trouble. So I, but that's I really, why it's tough because if you didn't like, you know, make it, then you wonder did it make an impact if yeah. it didn't get people angry. Yeah, but right? th that's why sometimes I feel like, you know, when you want to put your point across, like, like he makes work like that. Like there's no rapper in Singapore who talks about things like that, like things that, that are controversial or political or stuff that we should be talking about, like I said. So my brother has a song called Capital Punishment and he has another song that's about national service. And it, was, it came after like one of our NS, NS men in reservists, he passed away overseas. And we were talking, like he made a whole song and dedicated it to the, the, family, the family of the, the member who passed away. And I'm like, yes, that's what we need to use music for in Singapore. That's what we need to use our art forms for. We need to talk about these things. Like, we have rappers making songs about like national service and singing about, oh, Friday is book out day. That's what they're singing in Singapore. When you should use your, your platform to talk about the NS men who we, we lose and the fact that we even have a mandatory two-year service, uh, national service, and things like that. So I think, I think that's important to always use your art form to speak truth to power and and yeah I mean it's going to be scary but I think it's always going to be worth it and it's really like how you put your point across. Um, all right we're actually running uh, out of time but I still have more questions. <laughs> um, I'll go back to you Benice. Can you give practical advice on what um, all of us whether we are creating or whether we are consuming arts like what can we do to support marginalized stories? 
Well, you have to tell them, you know, because if you don't tell your own story, someone else is going to do it for you. And it will be more unfortunate if, if they were not from this country or from this continent and if they were of a different skin color. Um, and, you know, I, I believe that all work is political. Everything that you have to have that kind of intent because it is to change mindsets and it, literature is sacred. We are part of a tribe. I think writers are part of a tribe. And, and we have to dig deep into ourselves. We have to confront ourselves, deal with the past, the past of our histories, erasure, um, amnesia. But at the same time, we have to know how to protect ourselves. And I think, so in the last uh, year, since I left um, the directorship of this festival, I have worked on starting Malaysian Pen. So Pen, as you know, is an organization that started in 1921 after the end of the, the First World War to basically protect writers around the world. So Pen Malaysia has finally been ratified at the Congress in Manila. It took me 10 years. So now we have Pen. Faisal is one of our founding members because I think that writers in Malaysia need to be protected because they are getting harassed. Uh, our first statement was issued um, uh, towards Mariam Lee, who wrote a, a book called Unveiling Choice, and about the, you know just creating a discussion about whether or not to weather Tudong. So a month ago, she got a letter from Jabatan Agama Islam Selangor saying that they wanted to have a conversation with her. And this is, this is harassment. This is continued harassment about a woman who just wants to talk about whether it's okay or not to weather Tudong. So this is Pen Malaysia. This, and, and, you know, it, you know Faisal is also being harassed you know, by your university. And, and, and it's so vague and it's so insidious. So, so yes, writing is a political act, but I think now we have to, writers have to protect each other. And with Pen Malaysia, we intend to do that. Okay, yeah, that's a very, very important point. Thank you. Um, Faisal, I'll ask you, uh, what does true freedom of speech look like to you? True freedom of speech. You know, um, I'm a columnist for Free Malaysia Today. And um, just the other day that uh, I talked to one of the... Um, three years ago, on 24th of November 2016, um, there's a member of a Shia community in, in Perlis. He was uh, abducted. And uh, after a long period of uh, inquiry by, uh, by Suhakam, our National Human Rights Commission, uh, they have um, decided that uh, five, actually two, two cases were actually enforced disappearance. And uh, we have five actually members of uh, religious minorities have been abducted and just suddenly disappeared just like that. And, um, I was thinking that um, I'm with uh, one of my, my friends actually helping uh, the, the family and the community, uh, you know, to, to help them prepare, get prepared for the inquiry. And um, I wrote a piece uh, actually published last Thursday uh, on the three years of uh, the, the, the missing, the, 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 the disappearance of uh, Amru Chetmat. And of course, I questioned about uh, who is responsible for this. Perhaps this is because of the fatwa, you know? And the, the worst part of being uh, branded as deviant, me myself, because I have seven books banned, and I have, I have a fatwa from Slango that gazetted, gaz, being gazetted, uh, stating that I'm, I'm a deviant, you know? And uh, because of that, because of that brand, um, 
ordinary people, extremists. You know, they are not afraid to do things to me, to do stuff to me. Because, well, the authority have already called him deviant. So, and uh, there's a comment in Facebook getting a lot of attention that uh, perhaps while well, he he write about he wrote about Amri uh, the, the 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 victim, perhaps it's time for us to make him disappear. You know, I mean, I mean, somebody sent it to me last night. So these are the things, yeah. So these are the things. Uh, I don't really, in fact, I don't really. I'm not really afraid of the authorities because of I keep getting harassment. I mean, you get immune because of that. But for the ordinary people, you know, we just we just don't know because there are just people just like us. So that is um, scary thing about it. And um, but through 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 freedom of uh, of uh, speech, speech and writing, when I first met Cheguno Hayati, the wife of Amri Chemat, uh, he's she's very you know she's down. She's she cannot she keeps crying, and three three years after that, she's now in a state of depression, and I think that well. Uh, I need to write about it. And in that piece, that my column, I questioned about the fatwa against Shiism. Perhaps it's created sectarianism. And sectarianism is actually the, 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 the real source of all these um, disappearances. Already five people. Um, and the other, the other, the other, no, four, four, four cases. So the other three is actually the Christians. And, um, these are the things that we need to do, although that um, uh, we are putting ourselves uh, in danger, in risk. Um, this is what I call true uh, freedom. A feeling that oh, the urgency to write, to, 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 to deal with it, to express it. Because coming back to what I said, that I think literature, L, with a capital L, is sacred. And I intend to do it. I mean, I intend to, to, to use that space, this space, uh, right as a tribe, um, to, to, to use it, to exploit it, to, to manipulate it, to, 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 to say it, to express um, the things that uh, we need to do, uh, human rights, for example, yeah, et cetera, yeah. Thank you, that's a beautiful thought. Okay, we actually only have 10 minutes left, so I, I wanna turn to the audience and see if anybody has any questions. Hi. Okay, so I was, uh, uh, to all of you, but I was really inspired by the fact that you guys were inspired by your teachers to become activists and writers. I'm a teacher myself, so one thing I've noticed in this day and age is that the education facilities are being attacked on all sides by uh, administration wanting to simplify cur curriculum and take out critical thinking, from governments and parents saying that we shouldn't have any liberal or things that are different opinions in our education, that teachers should be opinion free. We can't say anything liberal. And if we do, we get attacked by our bosses, by the parents, by the government. So, but the students look to us for hope. They come to us for resources and how to improve their critical thinking. So I want to know from you, what advice do you have for us teachers who are trying to navigate this in order to help our youth? I've been teaching for 20 years, and a lot of my students are here. 
and I just keep telling, I keep telling them to, you know, write the truth, write, write what's real, um, you know, learn the craft. Um, I, there's no censorship in my, in my um, I'm very fortunate to be teaching at the University of Nottingham, my head of departments right here, and uh, he believes in academic freedom. And that's why I believe in, you know, you ha as, as a teacher, I, you know, I, this is what I tell my students, you have to write truths, you have to understand yourself, learn the craft, and then just go with it. You, you cannot censor yourself. So what I, what I, pra I practice what I preach, really, and, um, and, and, and I find teaching a gift. It grounds me. I love working with young people. I love inspiring them. They inspire me in return. And that's something that I, that I hope to continue to do. So yeah, yeah. It, teaching is very, 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 very important. Actually, I encourage my students to ask questions. You know, because people are afraid to ask questions. I mean, here in Malaysia, I mean, like, because um, I don't ask this, don't ask that, because, yeah, perhaps in Singapore also. So, uh, and Brunei also. <laughs> so, I, I encourage my students to ask questions, because from there, it will lead to a lot of discussion, arguments, debate, and that's important. Um, be it that you, you, you with the right group, you with the left group, but when you ask questions, and you, you put everything on the table, and you discuss, that's the most important part of it. Um, and um, I encourage my students to ask questions, yeah. That's the start, I think, first step of it, yeah. Hello, hi. Um, my name is Pang, and uh, so my question is, I'm thinking about how censorship, every act of censorship, creates a chilling effect, right? It's felt not just by you, but by people around you, by your community. Uh, it impacts your families, your friends, um, your mothers and parents get worried and tell you, you know, be careful what you say in public, uh, which Asian mothers like to remind us all the time. Um, and, and because I think the reality is that we do connect what, this act of censorship that we see now, then we think, oh my God, today you get censored, maybe tomorrow you get arrested, and then somewhere down the line you get disappeared like Che Ahmad, right? So, I mean, you know, the, the culture of fear uh, is very carefully designed in this region, right? To remind us to be careful what we say in public. So I also observed then that in a culture of fear, that people who are more marginalized has higher cost of speaking out. And that in such a culture, uh, the people whose voices we then end up hearing are often those who already have some access, uh, some privileges. Uh, they have louder voices, better education, or more, uh, have resources to be protected, right? So what, what can we do then to make sure that this platform is also equal to the people who are more marginalized in these spheres who have a higher cost of speaking out, right? I mean, what, I mean so for example, Pan Malaysia is, is, a, is a great example of that. But what, so what else can we do? What, and what do we do through Pan Malaysia and, and these kind of setups? I think for me, I would say it's having allies from the majority community or privileged communities in Singapore especially. So, so personally, like, uh, I exist mainly online. All my work is online. So it was very frustrating when I went through everything and I have friends who have reached beyond belief and I have an international audience that could have easily just shared an opinion or shared what's happening in Singapore and got so many other voices like speaking up about it, but they didn't because it was convenient to not talk about it or it was just easy to not be political because you don't want to lose jobs. And in Singapore, it is, 
I mean, recently there was a survey that said Singapore is one of the most competitive countries in Southeast, like in the in the whole world. So it was it was quite crazy because I lived through that and I saw it happening. I saw like people in the industry that had the power and the platform to say so much, but decided to just close their eyes, you know, close not even one eye, close both or so during the whole thing, and they just like moved on and they just went on to take the jobs. And it's also tricky because it's I mean, you know, being a brown, being a female. A brown female in Singapore, it is, it's really like every campaign you see or every project when they are trying to engage artists or comedians or influencers and there will always be one token brown person. So I think it is uh, because now after the incident, of course I lost being that token brown person for a while and I think a lot of brown people in the community, even though they, they agreed with what I said, they also went silent because it was easy to get in and take my jobs. But to me, I'm like, yes, it's a business. We all got to live. We all got to pay rent, I get it. But it was also very frustrating because I didn't do this for me. I did this for like everyone who has felt this way for so long and everyone who's been offended by someone else painting their, their skin brown, you know? So, so it felt a bit like, uh, and, and why, why is it on us to constantly have to educate people when we are the victims of the situation? And it's extremely exhausting, but of course I still see, I, I know why I do what I do. So even though it's exhausting, it's still like, you gotta do it. Someone's gotta say it. If it's gonna keep being me, fine. I'll be that one girl in Singapore that keeps talking about things and, and gets called the racist. You know, I'll take that blame. Yeah. So I think it's it's really having allies in the in the communities that really will speak up and use their platform for good and and know why they do what they do and don't lose their purpose in the process of like getting jobs or getting fame and all these things. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to add to that. I mean it, it's you know, it's I'm very angry and I'm very confused about what Malaysia is at the moment. And I'm very sad as well because, you know, things have gotten so bizarre and, and just... But it's happening all over the world. It's happening in Australia, it's happening in the UK, it's happening in, in Brazil, you know. Um, and, and Southeast Asia is basically, you know, we're made, we're made up of failed nation states. You know, we're all... There is no one example of, of democracy democracy. I mean, Brunei has banned Christmas. Your sultan has banned Christmas. I mean, how bizarre is that? Not, okay, to be clear, it's not the sultan has banned it. So again, it's, it's the way that, you know, it's, they work in those little cracks, you know, yeah. like the way it happened was it was just someone from a religious uh, organization that decided that that was yeah. not okay. Yeah. And then again, is that culture of uh, self-censorship. So that idea went around and, you know, and that's not even, it's not official policy or anything. Like, there's never been any black and white. But that culture of just yeah. being scared to, yeah. to push, and then it ended up being a thing when, yeah. you know, but there's nothing legal, there's nothing in the law that says that it's banned. It's just yeah. purely based on, like, fear-mongering. But I, let, let me just finish. So I think, you know, in spite of all you know, our trials and tribulations and, and dealing with, with corrupt authoritarian governments and idiocy, we just have to keep fighting, really. That's what we do, we just have to keep fighting. Because if we don't fight, I don't know, I don't know, Pang, you know, what do we do? What do we do? <laughs> Are there any more questions? One more. I do have a question, uh, will be directed to Faisal Tehradi. So I've been reading um, his, his writing since I was 11. Um, and yeah, yeah, as, as soon as it was put up on the shelf, I, I grabbed it. 
<laughs> so, um, and I went to religious public school and his earlier works, if, if you follow him, um, is very convenient um, and resonate to what have been taught um, in religious school um, and, and, or basically uh, within the conservative of, um, in Malaysia, conservative community in Malaysia. So it is very interesting to observe um, the change or shift of paradigm or ideology and whatnot because you are very opinionated and vocal and you really uh, stated out loud um, in all your works um, that, you know, that r now I'm sitting here and listening to you. It's as, as if I'm listening to Dr. Ares and Tuhan Manusia. <laughs> yeah, so I would like to know, like, if you're not a writer, will that shift from the right to left or whatever we want to name it? Will that be happening? Um, you know, perhaps you can shed a few, uh, some experience or personal anecdotes on, on why is that so? Is it the breadth of reading um, throughout, you know, your career as writer? Or is it, you know, exposure or, or what is it? Because it's so interesting that you, you have, you know, degree and all, the, uh, you know, you went to the best Islamic public religious school, in fact, in Malaysia. And, you know, so, yeah, I would like you to share about that. I know you don't like to talk about it, but... So there's a Faisal Tehrani 1.0, just like Mahadir, Mahadir Muhammad 1.0, and then Mahadir Muhammad 2.0, so there's Faisal Tehrani 2.0. So before I'm, I'm sitting with Bernice and became a founding member of PAN Malaysia, um, I'm, I'm sort of like conservative, because one of the things is that, because as a writer, you know, I was picked up from school. There's a, there's a work program uh, organized, funded by Deon Bahasa and Pustaka, actually, picking potential writers from school and then shape them, mold them, train them and then you get uh, easy access to, be, uh, to, to you know, publishing a lot, a lot of your works. Um, so magazines just publish your works. So in suddenly at the age of 17, 18, I already become a writer. And at that time, getting like 200, 300 ringgit for one piece of... Uh, short story is really something and uh, uh, I think I'm among the first one to have uh, handphones. Other people doesn't have, they don't have handphones. So no, nobody called me because nobody, they don't have handphones, but I do have handphones. Because I've, so at that time, I think that, ah, so this is it, you know, being, being a writer and uh, you, you, you have this template to become sort of like a spokesperson for the, for the establishment, for the authorities. And that's what, what I've done for, for quite some time during my Faisal Tehrani 1.0. But, you know, when my books was, was banned, it's a, sort of like a blessing, you know, because um, I've been marginalized. People stop inviting me. People stop calling me. They, I have no friends suddenly, you know, from the, from the Malay literature uh, scene. And, I sit down and look at my, my reading and, and you know my works, and um, I ponder a lot and say that oh okay, now it's time for me to to to, to think and to, to look at my my works and uh, and then uh, getting back to Bernice, getting back to all my old friends, uh, Catherine and Sharon Stohada, others, and then Ami Muhammad, and this gives me sort of like 
energy, you know, to, to, to move on for this Faisal Tarani 2.0. And I think that, um, just like J.M. Cozy once said, uh, the Nobel Prize winner, that being a writer, you know, you, you're, a, you're sort of like a migrating from one idea to one idea. So there's no, there's no shame for me to, to, you know, to, to move on from one idea to one idea. And I think what I'm doing now is better, for, for, for better, for the society. And um, this is what I want to do. Uh, and um, obviously, um, it, it will cost me a lot. You know, tribulations, you know. I imagine that, you know, if I don't fight the Islamic authorities, perhaps I'm, I'm now sort of like a professor or what, you know, uh, in, in UKM, or, or, and I've, 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 I get a lot of recognitions from the mainstream one. But I, do, I don't choose that, because I think that uh, when, coming back to my teacher, I look at him, and it's a, the thing is that I've been, been nurtured, I've been raised that to look into something, things right, to, to, to tell the truth. Uh, and it's, of course, it's subjective. Uh, yeah? yeah? Right, so on that note, I, I'll just sum up now. <laughs> Sorry, running over time. I wanted to hear what you had to say. Um, so I think like, what we can take away from today's session ultimately is that we really do need to think of uh, setting aside our own convenience and remember, just and fighting for, for the right to express our ideas. Just, just to give a bit of background for me, like coming from Brunei, where we've never had um, any freedom of speech, but growing up in London, I have to say, like just being in that completely different atmosphere uh, allowed me to think critically. I think from ever since I was a kid, I was already a little bit, little, little radical. You know, <laughs> I was like six years old already, but having that environment that um, that allows that freedom. And I think when you are in a space where it's always been like that, where you've never really had proper freedom of speech and you, and you just don't know any better, you don't know why it's important. But, and, and when you don't know why it's important, then that's how it can easily erode without you realizing. And so, yeah, I think just to repeat what everyone was saying today, it, it is about uh, looking just beyond your own comfort, looking around to people next to you who, who needs a platform? Do you have a platform? Pass the mic, you know, just, um, and just remembering that this, this fight is not going to be easy, but it is necessary. So thank you, everybody. Thank you.